0: Been making our way through the Gospel of Luke on Sunday mornings. And this morning we come to what's one of the better known teachings of Jesus. And that's the parable of the sower. So look along as I read from Luke chapter 8 verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. When a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, He said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. And we will stop right there at verse 10. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that when it comes to understanding your word, you must grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. And so we ask that you would open our eyes and our ears that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. We ask that you would give us the will and the desire to listen intently and concentrate our minds in this hour. And that you would grant us soft hearts so that your word would make us more like Jesus. And pray that the Holy Spirit would work in the hearts of your people. That even in listening to this sermon, your people would be drawn to worshipping and praising you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the parable of the sower, and you'll... Notice that we stopped reading before we got to the explanation of the parable that Jesus gives in the following section, because the plan is to get to the explanation next time. We often want to just jump ahead to the meaning, and some of you can't help yourselves. You're thinking about the meaning of the parable right now. But before we get to the meaning of the parable, as Jesus gives it in verses 11 to 15, I want to focus on three other aspects of the parable that we see right up front in verses 4 through 10. And so if you're taking notes this morning, we have three points this morning. Uh, First, we're going to look at the context, the context of the parable. Uh, Just thinking about the audience and the circumstances which lead Jesus to start talking about seeds and soils and all of that. The second, we'll look at the telling of the parable We'll think about what a parable is generally, and then specifically what is being described in this particular parable. And then third, we're going to put it all together by looking at the purpose of the parable. Why does Jesus tell this particular parable in this particular context? And so that's kind of our roadmap for this morning. We're going to think about the context of the parable, the telling of the parable, and then the purpose of the parable. And so we'll start with the context. Remember, last week we focused on Jesus' disciples. Look up at verse 1. The 12 were with him, and also some women. And then we talked in particular about the faithful women who followed Jesus uh, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and those women. But remember that it wasn't just that there was a small circle of uh, disciples who are with Jesus. Uh, There are lots and lots of followers. At this point, Jesus is at like the height of his popularity. Look at verse 4. A great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him. I don't know why Uh, the ESV uses the word, the English word town in verse 4 when it uses cities in verse 1, it's it's the same Greek word, and the way the ESV translates it, we kind of lose that connection. Uh, The picture you should have in your mind is that Jesus is going from town to town, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and then the people from those towns are following him. So it's like with every new place that he goes, even more people begin following And so at this point, uh, there are thousands upon thousands of people in the crowds. Uh, The feeding of the 5,000, that's going to take place in the next chapter of Luke, right? That's 5,000 men. You add the women. You add the children. uh, You do the math. We're looking at upwards of 20,000 people. Madison Square Garden holds about 20,000 people. And so picture in your mind a, a sellout crowd at a Knicks game. Right, that's how many people we're talking about here. And Luke doesn't want us to miss that. Uh, the, the, the crowd is vitally important uh, for the context of everything that's going on here. And so just look at the repeated references that Luke is going to make in these next two chapters to these crowds. Just rapid fire here. Luke 8:19. His mothers and his mother and his brothers came to him. They could not reach him because of the crowd. Verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Verse 45, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Now looking ahead to the next chapter, Luke 9, verse 11, when the crowds learned it, they followed him. And then again in verse 37, on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. You see what I'm saying? Everywhere that Jesus turns, in every narrative, the crowds are there, and Luke wants us to know it. But here's the thing about these crowds, and this is really important for us to understand. Most of the people in the crowd, they're they're drawn to Jesus as a spectacle, but they don't actually believe. Some of them have truly believed in Jesus, right? They really believe that he is the Messiah. Uh, They really believe the, the good news of the kingdom of God that he's preaching. And so as a result, they've given their entire lives to him. And so in that category would be the 12, minus Judas, of course, and the women of verse 3. But that's not true of most of the crowd, there's thousands of thousands of people, a sellout game at Madison Square Garden, but most of them are there because they're just amazed seeing what Jesus is doing. They're, they're entertained by the miracles. They're, they're captivated by the teaching. But there's no faith. Maybe they even call Jesus Lord, Lord, but they don't actually care to do what he says. And so they're physically present as the crowds. But their commitment to Jesus is, at best, superficial. And it's these superficial disciples who are going to soon turn away from him, like the ones described in John 6. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And in addition to those folks, well, there's some in the crowds like the Pharisees and and their followers, who are openly antagonistic towards Jesus. Like they're only there because they're trying to trap him and they're trying to destroy him. They think that Jesus is a glutton and a drunkard and so they outright reject him and his teachings as blasphemous. And so, point number one, the context of the parable, you've you've got these huge crowds following Jesus' every move But the majority are superficial followers. And there are even some there who are openly opposed to him. It's just this small minority of actually faithful disciples. And so, here's a natural follow-up question. Why? Why is there such a variance in the crowds? I mean, they're all seeing the miracles, right? They're all seeing miracles like the healing of the centurion servant, and they're all seeing miracles like the raising of the widow's son. They're all hearing the same good news of the kingdom of God preached as Jesus goes from town to town. They're all listening to the same teaching, the Sermon on the Plain, the Beatitudes. So what's with the different responses? Why are some particularly the tax collectors and sinners, why are they receptive to Jesus' words while others, think of the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers, why are they in opposition? Or to put it another way, why, if this is the Son of God and his teachings have undeniable authority, no one ever spoke like this man, and his miracles are undeniably powerful, we've seen extraordinary things. Then why is it that the number of ultimately faithful disciples with Jesus is so small? Or we might ask the question this way, in our context, why, if Jesus is the Lord of the universe and the gospel is the good news of salvation, why do so many continue to reject the gospel? And so it's in that context The context of great crowds, but mostly superficial and even antagonistic crowds, that Jesus speaks this parable. Point number one, the context of the parable. Which brings us to point number two, the telling of the parable. Look at the end of the verse four, he said in a parable. So what is what is a parable? Oh, the word parable uh, literally means to throw alongside of, like how you might put two things side by side in order to in order to compare them. Uh, yesterday morning, I was trying to put the clock back up on the wall uh, in Haldeman Chapel. Uh, I could not reach the hook, and so I called Dan Jacobson over, and I said, "Dan, can you help me out here?" And he did it with ease. So, I had Dan stand next to me, and I had us both reach as high as we could. And it's not just that Dan is taller than me, although he is taller than me, it's that his arms are much longer than mine. And you can clearly see that as we stand side by side and we both reach up in comparison. That's basically how a parable works. It's a story from real life, a real life scenario, being thrown alongside a spiritual reality, side by side in comparison, in order to teach or illustrate some spiritual truth. And so as you picture the real life scenario in your mind's eye, that helps you to understand some deeper spiritual truth. And so sometimes you'll hear it referred to as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I think that's fair. So for example, parables will be like the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed or leaven or a hidden treasure, right? Spiritual reality is being compared with an earthly story. There's a lot of differences within the parables. Some are are short and to the point. Uh, Some are long and involved. Some are about nature and agriculture. Others are about weddings or employment, and the spiritual realities they're describing, well, they range from judgment to forgiveness to discipleship. But at the end of the day, they all function in some way as comparisons, or right? illustrations to help the hearer understand some spiritual reality. And so you see in the parable of the sower that Jesus uses easy to understand real life things like. Fields and sowing seeds and birds and thorns. Things that his hearers would have all been familiar with in order to illustrate a spiritual truth. And we'll talk about that next time, right? About the gospel and human hearts. So everybody in that audience, well, they either worked in agriculture themselves, or they knew someone who worked in agriculture, or they walked through fields every day, or they watched people sowing seeds out their window, like everybody there would have been instantly, immediately familiar with with all of this imagery. And so for the original audience, for those crowds who were gathered around Jesus, going into the details of what's happening in this story just wouldn't have been necessary. They all knew it already. But for us, the closest we get to agriculture is walking down to the sill and buying a potted plant. And so we would probably benefit from a little filling in of the gaps. So what's going on here in this parable? Well, there's a sower in sowing season in the fall. And so he goes out with his big bag of seed and he, uh, whether it's wheat or barley or whatever it would have been, and he would have had it down to an art form Like he would count off his steps and scatter the seeds as evenly as he possibly could. But some of that seed would inevitably fall along the walking paths that would run through the fields so that people could cut through them. You remember at the beginning of chapter 6 when Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields and his disciples are plucking some grain and eating it and the Pharisees get all mad about that well, they would have been using uh, paths like this. They would have been traversing through the fields using a path like this. And this is true of anything that gets walked on a lot, whether it's uh, a dirt field or it's the carpet in your home, right? the more that it gets walked on, the more pressed down it gets. And so if any seed falls on this path that's all packed down because people are walking on it, well, it's just not going to make its way into the ground. It's just going to sit there on the surface. And what happens to that exposed seed? Look at verse 5. It gets trampled underfoot by the people who are walking on the path. And then the birds of the air come and eat it. But not all of the seed, of course, falls on the paths. Some of the seed falls on rocky soil. And what Jesus is alluding to there is that in Israel, you would have these areas that were basically a thin layer of soil above a layer of bedrock. You remember when Jesus talked about the wise man who built his house upon the rock? Right, that's the kind of bedrock that we're talking about here. Uh, it's great if you're trying to establish the foundation of your house. Not so great if you're trying to grow a crop, especially if that bedrock is close to the surface. So what happens when seed is cast on this Rocky soil. Well, unlike the seed that gets eaten by the birds, these seeds actually have a chance to germinate and the plant begins to grow. But because that soil is so shallow, there's this impenetrable layer of rock right underneath it. Well, the roots can't go deep into the ground at all. And as a result, verse 6, the plant withers, it has no moisture. The roots are unable to go deep enough to get the water needed for that plant to survive. Some of the seed, meanwhile, falls, look at verse 7, among thorns. So unlike the first two scenarios, this soil is fertile, but it's almost too fertile because the thorns, you should be picturing weeds, uh, they're abundant in this soil. And if you think about it, this one is on Adam. Because when he sinned, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And so this is all his fault. But what happens here? Well, the plant begins to grow. And maybe it looks good for a short season. But eventually the weeds are too strong. Uh, They grow strong. They take all the nutrients and the water that the plant should be receiving And eventually our plant dies. And so we're 0 for three at this point, but it's not all bad news, because some of the seed falls into good soil. Verse 8. And so in contrast to those other three types of soil, right, this is soil that's not packed down, this is soil that's not just above a layer of bedrock. This is soil that's not rife with weeds and thorns and thistles. No, this is good soil. So what happens to the seeds that are planted there? Well, they grow. It results in a bountiful harvest, right? A hundredfold of a yield. And point number two, the telling of the parable. Well, that brings us to point number three. This is where we'll spend a majority of our time this morning. The purpose of the parable. Why does Jesus tell this parable... In this context. Now maybe you say. Well that's obvious. To teach the spiritual truth. That when the word of God is preached. How it's received depends on the person's heart. That's true. But let me ask you a question. How did you know that? Here's the thing. Most of us in this room. We have read this parable. And it's explanation before. Uh, Both the parable and its explanation are in three of the four Gospels. And so if you've ever read Matthew or Mark or Luke, like you've already seen the answer key. And so you're sitting there saying, well, of course, the seed represents the word of God. And of course, the various types of soil, they represent people's hearts. And the four different scenarios are illustrating four different responses to the word of God. But remember, the only reason that you know that is because of Jesus' explanation of the parable that's been recorded for us in Scripture. Put yourself in the crowd that day. You hear Jesus tell this story about the sower, the sowing, his seed, verses 5 through 8, but imagine that you have not heard the explanation. That's hard for us to do. Like we can't hear this parable without immediately thinking about its meaning. It's like when you see one of those hidden picture things, and once you see the old man's face, or whatever it is, like you can't unsee it, and so every time you look at the picture, that's what jumps off the page at you. In the same way, if you know the explanation of the parable of the sower, it's hard to unknow that. And it's easy to forget that unless you know the explanation, this parable makes absolutely no sense. So just for a moment, try to forget what you already know about this parable. Put yourself in the shoes of the crowd on that day and try to figure out what Jesus is talking about here in verses 5 through 8. You don't know that the seed is the word of God. You don't know that the soils are people's hearts. You don't know that these four scenarios represent four different responses to the word of God. So what is this parable about? Well, maybe, maybe Jesus is talking about practical agriculture. He's warning us that we should be careful when we plant seeds so that we're not wasteful. We need to be careful with our valuable resources. We need to be good stewards. Or maybe you think the seed represents money. And the soils are different ways in which you can invest your money. And so you can invest it in things that people can steal, right? That's the, that's the bird snatching away the seed. You can invest it in these get-rich-quick schemes. So that's the seed with no root that springs up, but then it dies. You can invest it in projects that have too many competitors, right? The market is saturated. That's the weeds that choke out our seed. Don't do any of that. You got to invest your money in the good soil. Or maybe, maybe the seed is your search for true love. And the soils are like potential spouses. And so sometimes you share your feelings and the bird comes and snatches it away. They just flat out reject you. But sometimes they do love you for a little bit, but their, their, their love is, is superficial. It's shallow. It's short-lived. Sometimes other things compete for their love. And so they leave you for that job across the country But then you find the good soil, right? You find true love and you get married and you live happily ever after the end, right? And so the seed is your search for love. You get my point, right? Unless you have the key, the key that unlocks this parable and the key is in verse 11. Look at verse 11. The seed is the word of God. Unless you have that key, how could you possibly know what Jesus is talking about? And so the earthly story Well, it's really simple, especially to the original crowd who would have been super familiar with sowing seeds. But if you just leave it there, well, what in the world is the spiritual reality that the story is supposed to point us to? And that's why Jesus finishes the parable with that phrase that you often find on his lips. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now look at verse 9. So his disciples come to him and they ask him the meaning of the parable because they themselves are clueless. So even faithful followers of Jesus who have given their lives to him, even they have no idea what he's talking about. And look at what he says in verse 10. To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but... For others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And then he goes on, verses 11 to 15, to explain the parable to the disciples so that they would have ears to hear. And again, we're going to get to that explanation next time. And so a parable, you see, can serve two functions simultaneously. It can make spiritual truth clear to those who have the key, right? To those who understand what it's about, to those who have it explained and revealed to them, those who have ears to hear. And it can give those people deep spiritual insights, right? The secrets of the kingdom of God. But at the same time, parables can hide those same spiritual truths. From those who don't have the key. So that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. But why? Why would Jesus want to hide spiritual truth from people? Well, to answer that question, we should realize that what Jesus says here, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand... That's actually from Isaiah chapter 6. So let's take a look there because that passage is going to help us understand what Jesus is doing with parables here. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 6. This is probably one of the best known chapters in the Old Testament, right? Isaiah has this grand vision of the Lord. John tells us in his gospel that it's Jesus that he sees. Uh, the train of God's robe is filling the temple, and all the angels are worshiping him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And, and Isaiah is, he's in the presence of holiness here. He's convicted of his own sin. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then God cleanses him. An angel touches his mouth with a coal from the altar. And so it is this powerful and memorable scene of God's holiness, of man's sinfulness, and God taking the initiative to make atonement for man's sin. But the chapter doesn't end there. So look at the rest of the passage, starting in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. We say, great, Isaiah has seen this vision of a holy God and his glory, and now he wants to serve God with the rest of his life as a prophet. But now listen to what God says. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not understand do not perceive, right? That's what Jesus is referring to in his explanation of the parable, right? We see that quoted in Luke chapter eight. But now continuing in Isaiah six, God makes it clear that the reason for that lack of understanding, that lack of seeing is judgment. Look at verse 10. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land." That, of course, is referring to the exile. And so this whole scene in Isaiah chapter 6, from which Jesus quotes that line, it's one of judgment on the people for their many sins, for their unbelief, for their rejection of God. And one particular manifestation of that judgment in Isaiah's ministry is that the people are going to be further blinded and deafened to spiritual truths. They didn't want to listen to God. And so, in judgment, He gave them exactly what they wanted. He made them deaf to His word. Now, that's a really sobering thought. But it's a theme that's not just unique to Isaiah's ministry, it's a theme that we see all over the scriptures that when people reject God, When they stop listening to him, one of the ways in which he judges them for that sin is giving them exactly what they want. Spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness, general hardness of heart. You might be familiar with one of God's judgments on Israel in the book of Amos. In judgment... For disobeying and ignoring and rejecting his word, what does God send? He sends a famine, but it's not your typical famine. Amos 8, I will send a famine on the land, and not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Because they rejected God's word, well, God took his word away from them. Or consider Psalm 81. My people did not listen to my voice. There it is again. They are not listening to God's word. Israel would not submit to me so what does God do in response I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels they didn't want God's word and so he gave them up he gave them over to their own counsels and consider even the ministry of Jesus John 12 we we read this this morning providentially starting in verse 36 While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed. And what did he do? He hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Right? They rejected him. And so what does he do? He hides himself from them. Then two verses down, look at verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. There's Isaiah 6 again. The people rejected Jesus, and so God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. It's all over the scriptures. In response to sinners rejecting his word, one of the judgments that God will bring is to take away whatever spiritual light they had and instead give them the darkness that they so desired. So let's bring this back to Luke chapter 8. Remember, Luke chapter 8, by this point in the gospel, we've already seen that rejection, that rejection of Jesus. For some... Pharisees, scribes, lawyers. It's been this open, explicit rejection. They hate Jesus, and they're trying to take him down. They're trying to destroy him. And we've seen that play out in the past few chapters.
1: For others,
0: as we said earlier, it's more of a veiled rejection. They're, they're enjoying the miracles. They're enjoying the, the spectacles and the, the fanfare, but they're rejecting what Jesus says about who he is and what he's come to do, the rejection is happening. There's a large crowd there, but the majority of them are refusing to listen to Jesus. And so in judgment for that rejection, now to the crowds, he speaks in parables. He speaks in parables so that those who don't want to hear him they can't hear. And those who don't want to see him for who he really is, now they can't see. So that, seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. And so it's not quite accurate to say that Jesus spoke in parables so as to make spiritual truths clear. That's true in part. That's true for the true disciples to whom the meaning of these parables are revealed. Right? To them, spiritual truths are made clearer as a result of these parables. But to the crowds at large, for those who had rejected him, well, to them, spiritual truths were being obscured and hidden in judgment. But to those who, with a sincere heart, desired truth, the parables would reveal it. But to those who, in hardness of heart, rejected truth, well, those same parables would conceal that truth. And so the parables were the grace of God to some and the judgment of God to others. Now, just to be clear, it's not that God conceals truth from those who are genuinely in faith seeking it. To to those who genuinely seek the truth, God reveals it. But he conceals truth from those who have rejected it. He gives them over to their desire to reject the truth. And so we see a drastic change here. Because going forward, this is going to be the pattern for Jesus' public ministry. Look at what Mark says shortly after recording the parable of the sower. Mark 4.33. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And so he spoke to the crowds in parables. He would only speak to them in parables so that they wouldn't understand. And he explained everything to his disciples so that they would understand. Point number three, the purpose of the parable. And so if you think about it, the purpose of the parable, according to Jesus himself in verse 10, is to divide the crowds into two. Those who have ears to hear and those who don't. Those who thus know the secrets of the kingdom and those who don't. There is no... In between. And in the same way, all of us gathered here today, we fall into one of two categories. Those who see and hear and embrace and believe the truths of the gospel and those who don't. Those who have had their sins forgiven and have thus been reconciled to a holy God and then those who are still under judgment and are thus his enemies. And so here's the million-dollar question. What makes the difference? Why is it that some people have eyes to see and ears to hear and thus believe the gospel while others continue in their hard-hearted rebellion against God? Was it Is it intellect or moral character? Or is it your family background? Is, is it that that makes the difference? What makes the difference? the difference of the answers in our text. Look again at verse 10. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Jesus is speaking to those who do have eyes to see and do have ears to hear, unlike the rest of the crowds. To you, it has been given. To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. And so what makes the difference It's God's grace. It's God's giving. To some, it has been given. While to others, it has not. You see, it's not like there are good people who honor God with their lives. And there are bad people who disobey God. They reject God. And the good people, well, the good people hear God's word and they respond in faith. And the bad people, they don't hear God's word and they're condemned. No. All are sinners, all have rejected God, none is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks after God, and so all are deserving of wrath and judgment. But the Bible teaches that in love, for reasons only known to him, God chose to save some, his elect, not because of any intrinsic qualities within them, simply because of his free grace. And so to those, it has been given. A spiritual insight has been given. Faith has been given. Repentance has been given. Salvation has been given. Eternal life has been given. All of it as a free and undeserved gift from God. That's the only difference. So let me just speak to you all directly here. If today you find yourself in the category of people who don't believe, maybe you've heard sermon after sermon after sermon, but you know you're not a Christian. Well, the good news is that you can't do anything to save yourself, but our God is a merciful and gracious God who saves sinners. And so you can go to him. Today you can cry out for Jesus to save you. And if you're wrestling with questions like, well, how can I know if I'm, if I'm one of God's elect? Well, friend, you just need to place your trust in his death on the cross for sinners like you because Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Like if you truly cry out to him in faith, you've essentially answered the question. Yes, I am God's child. On the other hand, Now, friends, if today you find yourself in that other category, the category of those who believe, like you're different from the crowds, you've been given eyes to see, you've been given ears to hear, you love Jesus, you trust his gospel, you have eternal life in him, well, don't you dare make that a cause to boast or exalt yourself as if you had somehow earned it. A cause to look down on others. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Had nothing to do with you. Your intelligence, your character, your awesomeness. It had everything to do with the grace of God. To you, it has been given. As Jesus says in Matthew 13, blessed, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. Blessed, for to you it has been given. Or look at how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians. Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Brothers and sisters, the the realization that God is perfectly just to judge the sins of those who reject him. And that the only difference between you, who trust in Jesus, and the rest of the crowds who continue to reject Him, the only difference is His grace reached down to you and gave you eyes to see and ears to hear. The only proper response is then adoration and praise and worship for the God who saved you. We sang it this morning. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? All right, so thousands, the, the crowds, they are willfully making the choice to reject God. And as a judgment for that, God will remove his word from them. But those of us who have ears to hear... Again, it's not that we somehow know better. It's not that we're smarter. It's not that we figured something out that the rest of the people just couldn't figure out. As Isaac Watts puts it, we were made to hear God's voice. Or as Jesus put it, to you it has been given. And again, the only proper response, we'll go with Watts here again, each of us cry with thankful hearts. Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I a guest when thousands continue to make this wretched choice? Why would you show love to me? Again, it's only for reasons known to him, but God has extended his lavish grace upon us that we might have ears to hear and eyes to see. Father, we praise you for Your sovereign grace, which has reached down and saved sinners like us. Father, we pray for those in this room who do not yet know you. Pray that today you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, that they would, for the very first time, see the glory of Christ. Father, we know that you are a merciful and gracious God. And so we pray that you would work that grace in the hearts of spiritually dead sinners today. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.